It's good to be with you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, Sandy and I did. We have uh, eight grandkids. The oldest is seven. And uh, they all came over, I know, they all came over uh, Thursday uh, for dinner, and it was, it's so loud. And then uh, Friday was the Iowa game, so we get together for the Iowa game, and they were all there, uh, plus uh, some friends who have a newborn. And uh, so it's so nice to, to say hello to them and goodbye to them, and, and uh, it, was, it was just, it was a great it was interesting. I'm getting old. So um, Sandy and I were here, Troy was right, about a year ago. And uh, so many of you have asked how we're doing. We're doing great. We've been married a year and a half. And uh, we found the secret, I think. Uh, we both love me. And... and uh, So it's working, and uh, I, before we got married, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about stuff, and I said, if you don't change, uh, it'll be perfect, and uh, the reality is she has changed. She's gotten even better. It's been an amazing time, so for those of you that have asked, we're doing well. Should, I think she's coming to the uh, next, next two services, so uh, we look forward to that. Let me pray, and let's get started here. Father, thank you that we can be here. Uh, we thank you that in our life uh, you bring challenges and difficulties, but you also give us insight and wisdom. So we thank you for that. And I just pray that you use this time here uh, this morning uh, to uh, maybe encourage some, maybe all. That would be bold. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Fill us with your spirit. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, about the time that Jamie called and said, can you uh, be here on, on this day, December 1st, I was reading this book. And so the big challenge for me when I'm invited into a, a place, church, or a study is, is to what are you going to talk about? And I find myself going down the same themes over and over again. Uh, hopefully, I guess, because they're important to me. But I was just, I had just started this book called One Way Love by Tullian Tavidjian, who is the uh, young man who replaced uh, D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I had just read the introduction. And I read a sentence that was one of those that grabbed my attention. And I thought, well, maybe that's what we'll talk about. He writes in the introduction, this is literally the first sentence. A few years ago, I read something astonishing. A prominent psychologist and anxiety specialist was quoted as saying. So here's the quote. Quote, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Now, I have no idea how you'd ever prove something like that, but I knew it would preach well. So we'll go with that part of it. Let me read it again. The average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. And so when I think of anxiety, those synonyms for me would be worry or stress. 
And it's not just a high school kid. The director of Britain's National Association of Mental Health wrote this, the whole of the Western world is under stress. Our mode of living produces continuous stress from the moment we're born. It hits everyone. There's no escaping it. Stress affects the apparently happy, healthy people just as much as the natural-born worrier. I'm left in no doubt that stress is the fastest-growing disease in the Western world. Uh, the AMA uh, suggests, and I quote, 50% of all visit by patients to physicians involves stress. As a health problem, that makes stress more common than the common cold. I actually checked yesterday and found some stats that say it may be as high as 70, 75% of visits to physicians are related to stress. Now, I don't know how accurate that is. I've spent a lot of time uh, in doctor's office in the last three months, and they almost always ask about stress. So it can be that catch-all too. My point is not for us to get sidetracked on some of these statistics and argue whether it should be 75 or 65. The reality is, as one biologist defines stress, is it's the wear and tear of living. It's just life. Whether some of you are sitting here now and trying to focus, but your mind is consumed about what's going to take place tomorrow, there's a deadline where... The money goes hard on a deal tomorrow. If it doesn't, it blows up. It could be relational. It could be anything, okay? I'm going to let you fill in the gaps there. I'm not going to do that for you. But, but in comes the wear and tear of living. Well, here's what experts tell us in terms of facing stress. Three things to do. I do one of them. Three things to do. Get control of your diet, exercise, and get plenty of sleep, Okay? Now, you pick out the one. You can figure it out. What, what I want to do is go in a little bit of a different direction. And this came out of an experience. One night, I was home. The phone rang. answered it. And there was a lady. She, you tell Schrader, I am. Hang on. And she passed the phone to a, a friend of hers who was absolutely hysterical. And I knew who it was. That was about all I got out of it. And then the phone went back to the original lady that had called, and she said, her, the, uh, speaking of the other lady, her husband was just killed in, a, in an accident. And could, is there any chance you could come over? I said, sure, tell me where it is. And I went over, and everybody was gathered together. And after probably about a half hour, I was ready to leave because I don't think I could contribute much. And the lady whose husband had died said, can we just talk for a minute? We did. And she said, I'm so afraid. And she was starting to play this scenario out. And she said, I feel so insecure. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen to our daughter and, and our finances. And, and I don't even know how to take care of a funeral. I, I feel all these feelings. And in the, in the course of that conversation, at that moment, and I think God gave it to me. I said, well, let's not talk about what you feel for a second. Let's talk about what you know. And out of that came the, the phrase that we use for the title of this is what you know trumps what you feel. 
Here's what I know is stress, anxiety, worry, whatever handle you want to put on it, you're going to experience that in your life. And as a follower of Christ, there's things that we know that allow us to push through that. I'm not trying to minimize the experience. I'm not trying to minimize the feelings. You go to the doctor tomorrow and he said, listen, we got a problem, here it is. And this is serious. I know you're going to have those initial feelings, that initial reaction. When that person you love tells you, I don't love you anymore, there's going to be feelings. But what I'm saying is, in the wear and tear of life, there's some things we know. Now, here's what I want to do today. I have five of them, and I know this is not an all-inclusive list. You might look at these five and say, well, they don't work for me, or three of them do. I don't care. But to take that list and to go to these things you know in this time of crisis. We have, uh, what, 23, 25 minutes. So let me just work you through them. I was encouraged when Troy said you had a note sheet. Uh, that was ambitious. And, and maybe you can take some of those today. Number one, God is in control. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this experience where he's wandering out in the field and eating grass and living like an animal. And then he comes to his senses. And when he does, he, he, he does this amazing testimony of God and who he is, of his power and his might and his majesty and how he raises up leaders and puts leaders down. He's in absolute control of everything. The planet that we are standing, sitting on, weighs six septillion, 588 sextillion tons. Spinning on its axis at 1,000 miles an hour, in an orbit of about 1,000 miles a minute, in, a, in the Milky Way galaxy that is so large that they say if you could travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, it would take you four and a half to five years to cross this galaxy. Just to give the distance a perspective, here's the scale, okay? One inch equals a million miles. On this scale, one inch equals a million miles to give us the distance across the Milky Way. It would be at a scale of one inch equals a million miles, the distance between Phoenix and San Diego. And one of billions of galaxies that God spoke into existence. That he has under absolute control. And yet, in the midst of all of this, you can have a personal relationship with him. He's not a distant, removed God. He's a God who created it, and then Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that he is also the God who holds it all together. That there's no maverick molecule that's loose in the universe that could subvert his plan. 
that he's the absolute authority. So that when people say, I believe everything happens for a reason, if that statement is true, then there has to be something or someone or some force or some power that's all-knowing and all-powerful, that's omnipresent, and that's God. That's the God who loves you, who cares for you, who brought you into right relationship with him. Here's a book that uh, came out in 2005, so that should classify it as a classic, I guess. Um, Louis Giglio, and the title of the book sounds a little confusing. The title is, I am not, but I know I am. I, I am not the I am, I am not God, but I know him. Giglio writes this, let me read to you. God is more massive than our wildest imagination, bigger than the biggest words we have to describe him. And he is doing today is sustaining galaxies and holding the stars in place and stewarding the seemingly chaotic events of Earth to his conclusion within his great story. He's constant. He blinks and a lifetime comes and goes. To him a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God is doing well today, thank you. He has no dilemmas, no quandaries, no counselors, no shortages, no rivals, no fears, no cracks, no worries. He is self-existent, self-contained, self-perpetuated, self-powered, self-aware, in other words, He's God, and he knows it. Louis Giglio talks of the time when God meets Moses and tells him he is the I am. And Giglio writes this. God was telling Moses, I am the center of everything. I'm running the show. I'm the same every day forever. I'm the owner of everything. I am the Lord. I'm the creator and sustainer of life. I'm the savior. I'm more than enough. I'm inexhaustible. I'm immeasurable. I am God. And by implication, he was saying to Moses, you are not the center of everything. You are not in control. You're not the solution. You're not all powerful. You're not calling the shots. You're not the owner of anything. You're not the Lord. Sometimes, depending upon the day, if I've had enough talk radio and a little bit of Fox News, I can be very discouraged by the end of the day. I'm prone to see things in a dark way, and pretty quickly, I get the sense that things are out of control. And I have to step back and remind myself that things are not in my control but they're under God's control. And all of a sudden, these things come at you in your life. One of those things you need to know, you need to remember, is that God is in control. Here's the second thing, that God forgives sin. Psalm 32, 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. If we confess our sin, He's faithful to forgive us. For those of us who are Christians, let's go ahead and define that. That's a, a person who's come to a point in their life where they understand that their sin has separated them from God, 
And though their natural flinch is to try to fix it, that's called religion, there's that point where they understand that Christ came. That's what we've been singing about. That's what we're prepping for in Advent. Christ came, lived, died, rose again so that we could have eternal life. He paid the price. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul tells us that because of that relationship, there is now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. That our sin is forgiven. And that's not a license to sin even more. No, the Bible calls us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, not work for our salvation, but as a result of a new heart, a new life. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We look differently, act differently, because we're a new creature. R.C. Sproul tells of the time that a counselor in his town came to him and said, I'll pay you a six-figure salary if you can come in and help me somehow deal with my patients and with all the guilt they have. Now, you need to know your sin is forgiven. It's not about you forgiving yourself. God has forgiven you. That's who you've sinned against. And I've watched people who who, who go through life with like a ball and a chain attached to them and they come to Christ in repentance and faith and there's this glorious moment where they understand their sin is forgiven and that chain is cut and I'll be darned if a month later they don't bend over and pick up the ball and start carrying the guilt around again. You've been forgiven. It may not always feel that way, but it's true. Here's the third thing, that God causes all things to work together for good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I love it. And we know. And we know God causes all things to work together for good. Now, it's not a universal promise. Paul then gives us a stipulation here to work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that God causes all these things, not sin, but God takes those things in our life, those things that that maybe we wouldn't even want, and uses them for good. James has a similar thought, James chapter one, verse two, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. Uh, I am not, Sandy is, uh, I am not uh, a runner. She's a runner, a swimmer. Uh, She'd like to bike, but I don't don't think that's safe. And, And she pushes her body. And she pushes it to the point where she doesn't think she can go any further, and then she'll push it a little more, and it's aerobics, and it makes her physically strong. What James is saying in James 1-2 is that trials are spiritual aerobics. Count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
my friend Larry Wright used to say that God knows the maximum elasticity of your faith. He'll take you to that point and he'll point, and it's not some sadistic way. It's to train you, and it'll take you out there, and then you pass that test, and all of a sudden you're saying, yes, I've passed the test. Glad that's done. And now all he's done is loosen up the band so he can start there next time. Into life comes all these things, and sometimes we're confused. We, we don't even know, not in a moral sense, but in a circumstantial sense. We, we oftentimes don't even know what's for our own good. There's a classic uh, prayer from a Confederate soldier that became the creed of the disabled in and, and, and the form of a prayer. Let me read it to you. I love it. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I am among all men most richly blessed. There's a gentleman that comes to Scottsdale Bible Church periodically when he's in town. His name is Dave Dravecki. Remember Dave Dravecki's story? The pitcher pitching his arm snaps. He rehabs, he comes back. He's making his... Uh, comeback appearance, throws a pitch, and the guys in the infield said it was like his shoulder exploded. And they went in and they began to look at it and explore, and it was cancer, and if you remember, they had to take his arm. And I had never met Dave, but I had speculated that that was an answer to prayer. that he'd been praying, God, use us in a significant way to touch maybe not just our city or state or town, but maybe this nation, maybe the whole world. And one night I'm watching a Barbara Walters special, and there's Dave Dravecki sharing his testimony with the whole country. Finally, when I did meet Dave, I said, I've been teaching this. I don't know if it's right or not. But, but tell me, that cancer in that arm and losing that arm was in fact an answer to prayer, wasn't it? And he said, yeah, it was. See, sometimes in the midst of this, we don't even know. That, that hardship allows you a platform to the people around you so they begin to watch you and they said, I had no idea. How can you endure this? I didn't know you're that strong. I'm not. But the Jesus that's in me, the spirit he gives me. See, in the midst of that stress and that hardship and those difficulties, those things come, and rather than push them away, one of the paraphrases of James chapter 1, verse 2, says we're to welcome them as intruders, as friends. 
that allow God a platform to work. Let me give you two more. See how you could add to this list? God's our only hope, and he can be completely trusted. Hebrews 11.1 is kind of the definition of faith. Faith means that we have full confidence in the things we hope for. It means being certain of realities we cannot see. Said another way, that in this life, our only true hope is Jesus. And those things that we see are temporary. That's an idea that Paul communicates in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Don't lose heart. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because we look not at the things that are seen but the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. Sometimes that, that deal or that relationship or that circumstance, or that scholarship, whatever it is, becomes so important that it almost displaces God and becomes our hope, our idol. Years ago, they refurbished the Statue of Liberty. And at the unveiling, the Secretary of Interior said this, and I quote, the Statue of Liberty stands as the hope for all of mankind. I'm a big American guy and a free market guy, capitalist guy. But the hope for mankind is not the United States of America, right? The hope for mankind is what? Jesus. Because our fundamental problem is not economic or political. Our fundamental problem is sin, and he's the only solution we have to that sin problem. He is your hope, and he can be trusted. And to a certain extent, when I begin to worry or have anxiety, and, and by the way, let, let me, I'm going to take some pressure off there because there's going to be an initial reaction when something happens that, that may not be this thoughtful approach. All of a sudden, something comes. At this time of year, we have those toys that here's the scene and the sleigh in the house, and you shake it, and the snow goes all over, but pretty soon it settles. But what I'm saying is when that snow, that adversity, those circumstances settle, and you grab a breath, you know that this is temporary. Here's the way I like to say it. I find relief in it, but not everybody does. To remember that no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. No matter how bad it gets, this is all there is. Because for us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and he is our hope. There's that wonderful scene that Paul paints in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of of the Lord will come again and there'll be a trumpet shout and we'll be caught up with him and spend forever with him. And most often we quit reading right there. The next verse says this, I think it's verse 18, comfort one another with these words. 
that, that in life, here comes the inevitable wear and tear of life. But for those of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior, this is not our home. And I'll confess that sometimes for me, it's so good here that heaven, I'm not sure, has its appeal. Then there's other times when I yearn for heaven. But I'm ashamed to say most often as getting out of here rather than being with Jesus. I'll give you one more thing, and, and it may seem odd in this list, but it, it ties it all together, and, and that is that God is immutable. Uh, God is changeless, Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord, and I do not change. And the reason I add that is that if God is changing, I'm going to sit down if I can for just a second. If, if God is changing, then maybe these promises change. When he says, do not worry about anything, these things I hate, these I love, maybe he changes, but he doesn't. There's no variation or, as James says, shifting shadow with him. That he's the same yesterday, today, forever. So let me, let me put a bow on this. In life comes these inevitable circumstances. You can't stop them. It's life. It's the wear and tear of living. I uh, did a funeral service a few years ago and in the graveside, and I'm not a very good, I do great funerals. If you die and you need a guy to do your funeral, give me a holler. Graveside's not so good. I, 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 there's something about them. But we're there, and there's the casket, and it's over in the open grave. And sitting next to me is the man who died. Sitting next to me is his daughter. And she's holding a, a, what would be his grandbaby that's two weeks old. And I thought, that's just the cycle of life. And you can't stop it. In, nor should you want to. Because God's working in the midst of all of that. Now, let me be clear on this, and this will lead us into communion. That promise is for those of us who know Christ. I was at a coffee shop the other day, and there were two guys, and they were marketing something, and they had a big demographic study, breaking people down by age and gender and ethnicity, economics. In this room, I can break the people into two groups, those who know Christ and those who don't. Those who've come to Christ in a personal way, confessing your sin, submitting to him and his lordship, embracing him as savior, and, and for those of us who are in that position, this is an amazing truth. We are as certain of heaven as the saints that are already there. Talk about something to be encouraging. As certain of heaven as the saints that are already there. 
It doesn't mean you're in a bubble and exempt from the hardship of life. But you'll experience those hardships in life. But he'll never leave you or forsake you, though it might sometimes feel like he does. You know he didn't. And he yearns to have a, a close relationship with you. And, and one of the things that Jesus did before he left this earth is to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. To take the, the bread and the cup. He told the disciples and us as well to do this in remembrance of him. That we look back to the cross that this idea of communion and salvation has a past, present, and future component to it. That, that Jesus died and we've been saved. And the present is he's walking with us now in this life. But there's this moment, boom, not long from now, we'll be with him forever. And he said when we gather together, we should celebrate. And this is the form in which we do it. So we invite those of you who are Christians to join with us this morning in communion. The servers are going to come and present the elements to you. You take them, you hold them, and then I'll come back and we'll take communion together. But this is a serious moment. This is a moment for you to examine your life. If there's sin in your life, now's the time to confess it. So let me pray as the guys come. Father, thank you as they come and present these elements to us. Let us uh, take them seriously. Thank you that you love us. And even in the midst of this world and life, we can find peace. In the middle of hardship, we can amaze our friends as they begin to see you working in us. God, as we come now, to this time of communion. Allow us to see our life as you see it. We pray that to you now in Christ's name. Amen.